part of the problem that we find ourselves in right now culturally is that we've placed our worth and our value in external contingencies, in other people's hands. And so what we do is we base our value and our sense of who we are and esteem on whether or not we're attractive enough or rich enough or interesting enough or well-read. But there's always going to be people who are, are wealthier, better traveled, better looking, more interesting than we are. And so that's incredibly disempowering. I believe that humility is countercultural in that people who are humble must start from a place of security. You must start from a place of already knowing that you're enough because that then allows you to be open to making sure that you're meeting other people's needs as well as your own. It opens you up to being curious and willing to learn and willing to revise because you have the security of knowing that you are not merely your beliefs and you're not merely your achievements. For me, humility has to start inward and move outward. It, it can't be from being humiliated. It can't be because someone else picked up the book and handed it to you and said, you should work on this. It really has to come from believing down deep that you're already a person of worth and value who is loved, who is worthy, who is already enough. Welcome to The Courageous Life, a podcast founded on the idea that taking risks, overcoming fears, and moving beyond the limits of our comfort zones are prerequisites for living meaningful and fulfilling lives. I'm your host, Joshua Steinfeld, and it's my mission to explore insights, practical strategies, and inspiring stories of everyday heroes that will empower more people to grow courage and awaken greatness. Dr. Daryl Van Tongeren, is a pioneering researcher on the topic of humility. In his new book, Humble, Free Yourself from the Traps of a Narcissistic World, he shares that modern science has revealed that true, authentic humility is a secure openness to the world, where we can be honest with ourselves and others about our strengths and our limitations, seeking to learn new perspectives and caring deeply about those around us. He goes on to make some important distinctions. Humility is not shame, it's not guilt, and it's not an excuse to be a doormat. It's a way of approaching ourselves, other people in the world around us, with a sense of, in his words, enoughness, an unconditional worth and value that opens us to the world as it is. And one of the things that we'll dive much deeper into in this conversation is some of the groundbreaking scientific research around humility that shows how humility strengthens relationships, enhances work, and improves society. Daryl will share at some length the powerful and transformative effects of humility, why it's wildly countercultural, and yet might be exactly what we all need. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. Daryl's work is eye-opening, and I've learned so much from him, both in this conversation and in his book, which I would highly recommend. You can pick it up anywhere books are sold. In today's episode, Daryl and I will explore the link between humility and living a life of authenticity, or having a feeling of being at home in our own skin. Daryl will debunk some of the myths of humility, including that it's a weakness. He'll share more about why humility is a strength at home, at work, in leadership, and how it can lead to thriving relationships. He'll share more about the relationship between experiences of awe, big nature, and humility. He'll talk about it as a skill. We'll unpack how you can learn to be more humble with dedication, practice, and feedback, and why humility is best cultivated in a group or community. We'll get into how to handle tough feedback and how to use humility to stay open to learning, to empathy, and to compassion. And toward the end of our conversation, Daryl will share more about why humility is such an important quality in leaders, why organizations need more humble leaders, and why employees and teams value humility so highly. And in case you're not familiar with Daryl's work, here's a bit more of a formal background. Dr. Daryl Van Tongeren is an associate professor of psychology at Hope College. As a social psychologist, his research focuses on meaning in life, religion, and virtues. He loves asking deep and enduring questions about what it means to be human. Daryl's research has been covered in the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, and NPR, 
In 2016, he received a Rising Star designation from the Association for Psychological Science. In his free time, he enjoys running, marathons, and in his words, not mine, surviving triathlons. For more on Daryl, check out DarylVanTongeren.com. All right, I think that's about enough of an intro from me. Without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Daryl Van Tongeren. All right. Well, Daryl, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure. This, um, this topic of humility feels like, one, actually, you say this in the intro of the book, that it's really countercultural. And at the same time, it might be exactly what we all need. And that's a generalization a bit, but I think it's really important after reading the book and your way of storytelling, of sharing kind of vulnerably about your own journey with humility, the incredible research you and others have done in this space. It's just an awesome, awesome book. So congratulations. Thank you. It's very kind of you. Thanks. Since this is The Courageous Life, where I always like to start the conversation, is really posing a question around whether there may have been some sort of challenge or adversity. And this could be anywhere in your life. It could be early days. It could be you're starting out in your career, whatever it is, that sort of put you on your path or maybe influenced your trajectory, largely of what you're doing professionally today. So your work in humility as a researcher, as a professor, et cetera. Is there anything like that that comes to mind, perhaps as a starting point? Yeah, there is. So when I was uh, in graduate school, I was kind of nearing the end of my graduate program. I think I was in my fourth year. Suddenly and tragically, uh, my my brother passed away. And so uh, he and I were quite close. And besides sifting through the grief of losing a loved one and, and a sibling, one of the things that I really had to wrestle with after my brother passed away was trying to reconcile some of the beliefs I had about the world um, and some of the beliefs I had about the divine and some of those religious and spiritual beliefs. And really, that event rocked me. And so I think prior to that, I had felt pretty confident, pretty secure about those beliefs. But then I encountered this situation in which my beliefs were not matching with the reality of the world. And so in a way, it was humbling, not in a good way, uh, more in a way that I felt a little bit in disarray. I felt a strong degree of dissonance. And so I really had to rebuild and revise my entire belief system. That process was incredibly difficult, but having been on the other side of that and, and still someone who kind of regularly revises what he believes, I realized that early on, so many of my struggles were because I was just so defensive and I was just unwilling to consider revising certain things. And it wasn't until, you know, kind of leaning into and doing the hard work and having other people encourage me to do the hard work of some of that belief revision that I started to realize how much better I felt. And then it started to, it it kind of overlapped a little bit nicely with some research that I was doing in graduate school when I started uh, kind of early on in my assistant professorship on humility. And I started realizing, I think there might be something to humility. I think there might be something to being open-minded, to being curious, willing to learn, and open to revise if we have sufficient evidence. And so it really was one of those areas where the personal and the professional overlapped, even though I, 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 didn't, I didn't want them to overlap. I kind of um, fell into it in that way. Awesome. Thank you for, for sharing that story, Daryl. I uh, really appreciate it. And yeah. I think there's, there's many things I could pull out there, but I just want to pull out that word encourage that you said, part of your journey and kind of revising and looking at what's next and, and these sorts of things was about, and healing perhaps was about encouragement from others, as well as your own dedication. This is actually a question that kind of relates to a major theme on the show, particularly early on, which was a lot of times there can be kind of an, I want to say almost a pressure put on individuals to be courageous, to lift themselves up by their bootstraps, particularly in the West and in individualistic cultures, things like that. And this topic of encouragement has been a big one. A question, how do we create conditions where others can be courageous has been a source of exploration. So I think as I think about that word encouragement and kind of your own journey, I'm curious about what impact encouragement from others may have had on your personal ability to develop humility. And also, if you think there's a link there more broadly, like if we want to develop humility, are there things that individuals can do to support others in the process to create, quote unquote, like the right conditions? I love that. I love that question. I think that's uh, so great. 
you know, I, I definitely think that I benefited from encouragement from people who loved me and cared about me. You know, one of the areas was when I would claim that I held beliefs that just were patently contradicted by other things I would do in my life. And my wife would encourage me to question, do you really hold that belief or are you just committed to the idea of having held that belief and have you changed? And so I, I would probably say I owe a, a large portion of, uh, if not a majority of kind of my development and humility to my wife and her encouragement uh, and her patience <laughs> as being with someone who studies humility and is wildly imperfect at it. And then I also, you know, I, I had a very supportive therapist who also encouraged me along this process of uh, belief revision and development. And, and I love your question because I truly do believe that humility is something we each have to undertake on our own. It's an individual process, but it can't be done in isolation. We need an encouraging group of other people around us to hold us accountable, to root for us. The moving sidewalk in the West, like you identified, is constantly moving us toward narcissism, toward self-promotion and self-aggrandizement. And if we're not constantly taking steps toward humility, we're going to easily slide back into those natural patterns. And that journey is best traveled with others. And so I could not be, and I, and I would not be, and I can't be in the future, someone who's working towards humility if I'm not surrounded by a community that encourages and supports me. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. Well said. Thank you for sharing that. Anytime we're having an important conversation, I feel like it's really valuable or maybe fundamental to put a definition on the table of what it is we're talking about. So maybe we could start there with a working definition of humility. And, and if you'd give me the grace, I'd love to actually read a passage from your book. And maybe we could use that as kind of a kicking off point here. Yeah, that's great. I love this from the intro. You say humility is a way of approaching ourselves other people, and the world around us with a sense of enoughness in unconditional worth and value that opens us to the world as it is. And two decades of scientific research agree, humility helps strengthen relationships, enhance work, and improve society. It's powerful and transformative, and as we talked about earlier, wildly countercultural. So I want to, and, and I'll let you take this and run with it, but I want to pull out this piece and talk a little bit about this, of this sense of enoughness, of wholeness. This is a theme that for me as a reader going through your book was so beautifully woven throughout the pages and seemed to really be such a key piece of humility. And I hadn't necessarily, maybe others have, but I hadn't really made that link so solidly before. And so if you could, as you talk about a definition of humility, I'd love to hear your thoughts more on this kind of piece around wholeness or enoughness and, and how that really supports humility. Well, thanks. Yeah, you know, where I landed with really thinking about humility as enoughness or security is part of the problem that we find ourselves in right now culturally is that we've placed our worth and our value in external contingencies, in other people's hands. And so what we do is we base our value and our sense of who we are and esteem on whether or not we're attractive enough or rich enough or interesting enough or well-read. But there's always going to be people who are, are wealthier, better traveled, better looking, uh, more interesting than we are. And so that's incredibly disempowering. And so I believe that humility is countercultural in that people who are humble must start from a place of security. You must start from a place of already knowing that you're enough because that then allows you to be open to making sure that you're meeting other people's needs as well as your own. It opens you up to being curious and willing to learn and willing to revise because you have the security of knowing that you are not merely your beliefs and you're not merely your achievements. And so starting from this enoughness, starting from this security has to be the place that we start. For me, humility has to start inward and move outward. It, it can't be from being humiliated. It can't be because someone else picked up the book and handed it to you and said, you should work on this. It really has to come from believing down deep that you're already a person of worth and value, who is loved, who is worthy, who is already enough. And then that can allow you to engage with others. That's fantastic. 
And I believe there's, you know, if we could kind of tease this out a bit further, you offer both a scientific definition based upon the research in the book, and then you kind of offer, for lack of better words, a layperson definition, or maybe a simpler or, or a clearer way to think about it. So it seems like there's three components of humility. And if you could talk a little bit about what those are, you know, also. Yeah, absolutely. So the three components to kind of make it easy to remember is our ability to know ourselves, to check ourselves and go beyond ourselves. So to know ourselves, this is what researchers consider to be self-awareness. So this is our ability to acknowledge our strengths and our limitations, the things that we're both good at and the areas where we need to grow. And it's kind of an objective and accurate sense of who we are in the world around us. So it's seeing ourselves in the world around us, honestly and objectively and with as little bias as we can. The second component is our ability to check ourselves. So this is us reining in our selfish and egoistic motives, being able to share the praise with others and accept our fair portion of the blame and to not prioritize our needs over others. The third is to go beyond ourselves. And this is really when we're engaging others with empathy, we're seeking to understand their perspective, and we're making sure that their needs are being considered at the same level as ours. So if we think about knowing ourselves, checking ourselves, and going beyond ourselves, kind of another helpful heuristic is humility is about being the right size in a situation. So not too big, but also not too small. So most of us can kind of get on board with avoiding the one ditch of arrogance where we don't want to be too big, right? Where we walk into a situation, we automatically presume we know what's best, even if we're a novice. But I also think that humility is not about being too small. And this is where I think humility has gotten misused and misapplied in the past, because sometimes people are told to be humble and are told to shrink when they have the expertise and they have the right to embody the space in a particular situation. And unfortunately, this has largely fallen among people who have historically been with less power or been outside of privilege or kind of parts of historically marginalized groups. They've often been told, you know, be humble, be small, but that's not humility either, right? Humility is about being the right size. You know, being too small is is servility or kind of that's like going along with other people, but it's certainly not someone who knows themselves is checking themselves and going beyond themselves. You know, if, if I'm going in for a surgery consult because I need a brain surgery, I don't want my neurosurgeon coming in and saying, hey, Daryl, what do you think we should do in this situation? You know, like you, you pick, no, that, that's being too small. Like I, I need, I need her or him or whomever to really know what they're doing and, and, and live into that expertise. You know, Daryl, one of the major themes on the show over the years has been living a more authentic life and the courage that it can take to do that. And so that's kind of been a topic we've been exploring with past guests, one of whom is Parker Palmer, who's a big name in the education space and is an author. And, and one of the things he said in our conversation, and I'd love to use this as kind of a segue into your thoughts on, on another question. He said, from his perspective, Two of the most basic yearnings of human beings are to feel at home in my own skin and to feel at home on the face of the earth. As he was kind of looking back and reflecting on his life during our conversation a bit, he talked about how some people never get there with either one, and that can be really sad. And, and so we went into a bit of a conversation about that. But I'm curious about this from your perspective, this link between living authentically and perhaps feeling at home in my own skin and humility. Is there anything there for you at all? And if so, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for me, the the most ready connection I see about humility and living authentically is our ability to know ourselves. And so if we need to feel comfortable living in our own skin, we need to know who we are. We need to know what that skin is so we can start trying to live a more authentic life. If we only focus on the things that we do great and we ignore the fact that we have limitations, that we have bias, that we aren't the best at everything. I have a long list. The list of things I'm bad at is far longer than the things I'm good at. Yeah, me uh, too. And, <laughs> and it's taken me a while to become okay with that. Because there are, you know, a handful of things, maybe two, three things that maybe I'm a little bit better at than, than other people. And, and that can really be where I lean in. That can be my contribution to the world. So I think that spills over into the feeling like I have a place in this world too. So by kind of seeing myself honestly, that allows me to see who, who I am and it allows me to kind of become more comfortable in my skin. And then knowing my strengths and weaknesses, I can lean into those strengths so I can find a way to contribute to the world. And also by acknowledging the areas where I need to grow. I can surround myself with people who, who can fill me up, who can kind of help cover some of those gaps. 
and who I can work with together. There's a, like I mentioned, there's a number of things I'm not good at, but I have, I have friends and I have colleagues who are good at those things. But I love that being at home in your skin, being at home on this earth. I, I think that's great. But if we're looking at the world through bias lenses, mm-hmm. or we fail to admit that we have a host of cognitive biases that are slanting the world in a particular way that's always favorable to us, we're not really going to be living as authentically as we can. And sometimes to live authentically at first can feel painful, but in the end, I truly feel that it's freeing. Yeah, beautiful. So you've mentioned bias a few times so far in our conversation. This was actually one of my favorite kind of sub-threads in the book, and you're talking about bias. And and one of the ways in which I think about this, and this is probably my own bias, but (laughs) maybe it's a way I make sense of things, is that there are some things when we're cultivating a sense of self-awareness, right, getting to know ourselves, our true selves better, there's things that are easier to see sometimes, and there are more obvious You know, it's like, oh, I can spot that weakness right away, or I know this very quickly. And there are other things that are sometimes very difficult, if not nearly impossible (laughs) at certain points, to actually be able to see clearly. And so you had this great discussion about bias, and maybe within the frame of getting to know ourselves better, could you talk about a little bit of maybe there's a common bias or two that you could share with us? And like, how do we how do I, if I want to work with my biases, like how do I work with that if I'm focused on cultivating humility? How do I better understand what those are, et cetera? Aside from, of course, going out and picking up your book and and reading (laughs) an in-depth conversation there. Yeah, so we've got, we have this host of biases that are just baked in to part of being human and we all have these. And so, you know, whether that's the above average effect, which is our belief that we're above average in most dimensions, you know, which on on the surface feels fine, but mathematically is impossible. We can't all be above average on everything. And, you know, one of the one of the things that research has found is that the closer we get to concepts or character traits or values that are central to how we see ourselves, central to our self-concept, the greater our bias is. So things that I care very deeply about, I'm going to have a bigger blind spot. I'm not going to be able to see that than issues or uh, concepts or character traits that I I don't care much about. So, you know, I I probably have an unhealthy need to see myself as like slightly above average in running because I just enjoy running. And so I'm probably going to be a little bit more sensitive to and and biased when it comes to evaluating my own running than I might be about, you know, if you think that I can play basketball well or water water ski well, I I know that I don't do anything close that resembles uh, any type of proficiency in either of those. The, the most pernicious of all the biases, though, is the bias blind spot. And that's even when we realize that we're biased. And even as your listeners are hearing and they're like, oh, yeah, I realize I'm biased too. We actually think we're not as biased as other people are biased. And so <laughs> we're biased in our estimation of our own bias, which just reinforces how troubling this whole conundrum can be. And so just like you were saying earlier with encouragement, I I think the cultivation of authenticity, of humility, of anything good and virtuous requires community. So I'm going to need people, and truthfully, I need to seek out the feedback from other people whom I trust and whose opinion I value to help me see some of my blind spots. And then when they offer that to me, I need to override my knee-jerk reaction to get defensive because I, I write a book on it and I will put the book down. I will stop writing the book. And in real life, I will get defensive <laughs> because it's just, it's just really natural. And so that impulse is going to be strong. But like you mentioned, I think one of the ways of overcoming these biases are to seek feedback from people we trust. And then one more, I think we need to be in consistent and authentic relationships with people who are different from us on any number of domains, ideologically, socioeconomically, uh, religiously, politically, racially, ethnically. We just need to be interacting with people from whom we differ. And being in authentic relationships with them helps us affirm their humanity and realize they're just like we are, right? We're, we're, we have this common plight of humanity, and it helps build compassion and empathy. I want to drill down on that just a little bit. And then I'd like to come back to the conversation about like working with defensiveness. Like how do we kind of stay open around that? I'd love to explore that in just a minute. One of the things I really appreciate about your book that you talked about was how biases can be reinforced. And one of these conversations was like so much of online life 
can be curated to my exact preferences That's and real. needs and likes. Yep. And I don't have to look at things that I disagree with or make me uncomfortable, et cetera. And one thing I, I love to offer during these shows or conversations is your perspective on things that are really practical that I might be able to do. So you talked about this, you know, if I go on social media, I can just like and curate my experience to things that I'm really comfortable with. I love, I agree with, et cetera, and never really look at anything else. And that's almost like giving steroids to my bias, just making it bigger, right. going it stronger. Right. And I'm not really aware that that's happening a lot of times. So that's happening. And then how do we, if I, oh, you know, I become aware in this moment of, oh yeah, I am doing that. How do I begin to work with that or counter that? Is there something practical that you might offer around that? Yeah. So one thing that happened to me, and, and I, I didn't even realize this was going to happen, but as I was writing this book and I'm, you know, trying to write down all this advice, I realized kind of how hypocritical I was, you know, so in the mornings, the first thing I do, I get my coffee. And if you're, you do the Wordle, or if this was pre-Wordle, you know, you do something else, but then I would usually start with my favorite news source. Mm -hmm. And my favorite news source kind of aligns with my political views. And what I realized was I was kind of reading all the news through the same lens. And so one thing I tried to do was I, I thought, oh gosh, this is going to be hard. I need to start reading against myself. And so each morning, and I still try to do this, I try to check out a number of different news sources, including from perspectives that I don't particularly align with. In part, that helps break the algorithm on my computer because all of a sudden they think I'm some, you know, I'm, I'm dare I say, you know, a moderate because that's now a, <laughs> you know, a bad word. But it also kind of helps me understand how other people who might be holding ideologically different uh, viewpoints than I do are thinking about situations. And so I also started signing up for newsletters where there would be one issue presented in two different ways. I have a good friend, one of my closest friends from high school, he and I could not be more different politically. And so I started to have honest conversations, not trying to change his mind, but honestly trying to learn more about it. And so I think, like you mentioned, it's easy for us to surround ourselves with information that only confirms what we already believe, to surround ourselves with friends that only believe what we want to believe. I, I can't tell you the number of, of conversations I've heard where families were, have been fractured over religious or political differences. And that friends have been outcast because they, they aren't as uh, strongly supporting of one particular issue that a friend group really highly values. And so if we can cultivate also a more diverse set of friends, I think, you know, having an intellectually diverse experience, having a socially diverse experience, and then, you know, seeking out ways that we might be wrong and trying to argue against ourselves can be small steps once we realize that this, that this bias is operating. So, yeah. So as we transition kind of into this conversation about staying open, maybe staying curious, uh, reducing defensiveness, you brought up politics. And one of the connections here, perhaps to humility, which we could talk about a little bit, seems to be around identity when it comes to politics, and maybe other topics as well, like kind of forming our identity. I am fill in the blank, whatever political Democrat, Republican, right. yep. etc. I'm wondering if there's something about ego there or making sense of the world, et cetera, that we're kind of holding on to this really tightly rather than perhaps holding it a bit more loosely and focusing more on the ideas or our values, or maybe there's some room there for humility, which could enable some flexibility. It's not sure. Cause I see this as you talk about even families being fractured, you know, through these Right. conversations, et cetera, and beliefs. It's really sad and really difficult, really hard to deal with. So anything there for you about how we might create some bridges across really different views or ways of seeing the world? Yeah. You know, and I think one place to start is really with that idea that we've touched on earlier, and that's around having a sense of security or enoughness. So if I'm operating out of a deficit of insecurity, then of course, I have to be something. And so I am my beliefs, or I am my political party, or I am my religious affiliation. But if you reverse that, and I have enough security, and, and I already have a, a sense of enoughness and worth and value and love, I'm actually not my politics. I'm not my beliefs. I, I'm me, because I, in and of myself, am enough, and I'm worthy enough, and I am loved enough. And so if somebody puts down or simply just disagrees with my particular worldview or belief, it's less threatening to me because I am not my beliefs. I am me. And I think what we've done is we've conflated, and many people have done this, we've conflated our beliefs and our identity with our worth and our value and who we actually are. 
but this is the wild thing that people constantly forget. And we engage in such elaborate cognitive gymnastics in order to navigate this is we change all the time. And so if I am being a Republican and then I have these experiences, a decade later, I become a Democrat. Well, then what on earth am I? Right. And suddenly people are like, oh, well, I had it wrong before. And now who I am is a Democrat. Mm -hmm. The problem is exactly what William James says. And what he says, what's attributed to him anyway, is a great number of people think they're thinking when they're merely rearranging their prejudices. And so a lot of times we think that we're being open-minded when all we're doing is shifting the targets of our vitriol. And so I think, oh, look at me. I'm this enlightened person that moved from this group to this group. And now I hate the other group just as much as I hated my current group. And that's not thinking and that's not humility. It's just rearranging your prejudices. And so I think the first place to start is with a sense of security. I think a second thing is whenever we get together in groups, I'm seeing kind of two things happen. One is what social psychologists call group polarization. So I get together, I talk with my pro-environmentalist group, and I learn more arguments for why I should be an environmentalist. But because I have this need to kind of be optimally distinctive and stand out, I want to be a little bit more extreme than my friends. And so, you know, they may go to a pro-recycling rally once a month, but I'm going to go once a week, right? And then someone's going to hear that and they're going to want to one-up me on that. And so when we get with these groups, we start becoming more extreme and more entrenched in our beliefs. One other thing that I think that is happening is what I call creeping moral amplification or moral sacralization. And by that, I mean, there are probably some things and beliefs that we have, we probably don't want to have up for discussion. So for example, I think that child abuse is just patently wrong. And you're not going to convince me that abusing children is right. Like my mind's pretty made up on that. The problem is we start treating every issue with the same level of kind of moral sacredness that we do some of those core beliefs. And we give that same level of kind of being above revision to every issue. And so all of a sudden, everything's off the table and I can't revise anything. Whereas it's not true that whether or not we should have pineapple on our pizza holds the same moral standing as whether or not child abuse is right or wrong. And so we, we see this creeping moral sacralization. Everything becomes this sacred moral issue that I can't question. And so what we're left with is people who are rooting their identities and their self or their self-worth in their identities. And so they're unwilling to change their identities. And so part of the shift back, I believe, is to embrace this sense of security this enoughness, this worth, and this love. So we realize we're not just our beliefs because how many times in human history have we just simply been wrong? And we've staked so much on the fact that we're as right as we think we can be, but new evidence uncovers how wrong we are. And so in the final analysis, we're going to look rather foolish if we are merely the sum of our beliefs because most of us, if not all of us, are wrong to a fair degree. I think that's beautifully said. Thank you. I'm reminded of another related topic to this that you explored in the book. And I'll kind of sum this up in this way. I'm not sure if this is from Brene Brown directly. I think the quote's often attributed to her, but maybe it came from someone else. But she said, it's hard to hate from close up, move in. Mm, and I yeah. just, I love that. And I think there's, you talk about this in some detail in the book. It's so much easier to be behind a screen, a keyboard, and you know, write hateful messages, et cetera, than it is if I sit down to dinner with somebody and kind of get to know them as a person. So is that for you another piece of kind of working with this division or maybe bridging some differences or like how does that tie in? I, I think that's absolutely right. Part of what allows us to uh, be prejudiced or, uh, or hateful toward other people is really a, a dehumanization. So once the other person loses their humanity, it's easier for us to engage in all sorts of, of horrible, hateful things. And so as you move in and as you get closer to someone else, you really get exposed to and you share in their humanity. And that's why having a diverse set of friends, having a, a range of people that are different from you and engaging with them, seeing their humanity, I think does reduce and ameliorate a lot of that, that contempt that we might feel because we realize that they're, you know, other people are just like us.
I love the um, the themes that have been emerging, not only around humility, but you've mentioned curiosity multiple times. Compassion was a theme in your book. And this just like us being that element of common humanity that's so core to compassion, which is another big theme on this show. And actually a question that we've been exploring or I've been exploring with people for some time now actually came from a past guest, Mark Nepo. Mark Nepo is a, a great poet of our time and, and a teacher as well. And he shared with me when we were sitting down from his perspective, one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves in this lifetime is how do I keep my heart open when it begins to close? Yeah, it's beautiful. And it's so poetic and it's really moved beyond just the heart on the show. Like, how do I really stay open? How do I stay curious? How do I stay in a space of learning as opposed to um, sort of shut down or being more judgmental or defensive? So I'm going to, maybe we can start with something really practical here. I'm thinking back to what you talked about when you sit down, you know, with your morning cup of coffee and you have your news. And I'm just thinking about like in the moment, like these are fantastic ideas that could be worth striving for, right? Like I want to develop this. And then in the moment, like you said, there's that knee jerk reaction yeah, where it's like all of a sudden I read something that's maybe a really different opinion. I don't agree with it. It conflicts with my values. And all of a sudden I'm contracting. I'm shutting down, becoming closed off. So as you've gone through, maybe we could start with you and then expand out to kind of just what you've learned through the research as well. But in your own journey, as you sit down and you read that paper, as you engage in dialogue around really different perspectives, in those moments where you notice your heart might begin to close or you become more closed off, what is it that you're doing to stay open, to stay curious, to stay engaged? Yeah, I think the first place to start is to start with a, an awareness that this is what is going on. And so once I am aware that my initial reaction is going to be to tense, to close, to start getting defensive, that allows me a moment to pause, a moment to reflect, and then I can kind of make a decision to act a little bit differently. You know, I think one of the things that that research has pointed towards uh, kind of two ways that we can kind of help overcome some of these uh, some of these knee-jerk reactions toward defensiveness. One is I think that we, we can try to approach others with empathy. And with empathy, we can try to assume that other people are trying their best. And so it's often easy for us to think that other people have these malevolent intentions. They're trying to, you know, to get away with some type of horrendous evil as opposed to Maybe they're really just trying their best with seeing the world through their lens, through their perspective, and, and with their life experiences. A second thing that we can do to help reduce defensiveness is to try to think of other sources of meaning that kind of help affirm our sense of self-worth. So our defensiveness comes in part because these beliefs provide us with so much meaning and they really kind of help answer these bigger existential questions of, you know, what's the nature of humanity and, and how, how should humans live? And so it can be threatening to try to question some of those things. And so if I can think about other areas where I get meaning from, so my relationships, maybe through my work or my belonging with other people, that's going to help take a little bit of the sting and the edge off of the fact that some people are, might be questioning my beliefs. It kind of helps uh, reduce defensiveness a little bit. I love that. And as we kind of continue on this thread, when we talk about opening as opposed to closing, you shared this wonderful story that I'd love, if you're willing to, just share it here in our conversation in the book about a trip with some very, very close friends. And one of them gave some really kind of tough or specific feedback that really changed the conversation. So I'll let you kind of share that. But it, it's kind of a bigger question to me of there's this, I'm reading something or I'm in a conversation and staying open. And then there's this other flavor, I think, for lack of yeah. better words, of yeah. like, I'm getting some really tough feedback from someone. And it's like head on and ooh, it has a certain sting in the moment. Yeah. How do I kind of stay open to feedback? Because we all get feedback, whether it's at work, whether it's from loved ones in relationship or friends, like that has a maybe a little bit of a different flavor than some of the other things we've been talking about. So if you're willing to share that story, and then we could talk a little bit about this. Yeah, definitely. So I, I had met some of my old college roommates uh, about four years ago, and we went camping in Rocky Mountain National Park. And these are people, we we were all in each other's weddings. You know, we were original college roommates, and we would love to get together and play Euchre, which is a, a Midwestern card game. And we would, you know, drink whiskey and just kind of hang out. And so 
we were camping in Rocky Mountain National Park. And, and to be honest, I was kind of at a tough spot in my life. My dad was, his health was declining and he was about to pass away. And I knew he was about to pass away. And personally, I was wrestling with some things. And relationally, I had some, just some struggles that could, should have been really natural for me to share. You know, but we spent most of the, the kind of the first day and a half just kind of messing around, being rather immature and just, you know, focusing more on on playing. And one of my closest friends said, hey, you know, well, what are we doing here? Like, you know, and like, wh- what's what's going on? And, and I think I made some type of sarcastic retort. And, and you know, he kind of just shook his head. And he's like, hey, look, if we're just going to get together and we're not really going to be authentic, we're not going to be deep. I, I think this is the last time I'm going to take time away from my family to do this. And that one really landed hard for me. Initially, I, I, I just was like, man, why is he being so uptight? Why can't we just get together and blow off some steam and, you know, enjoy some good food and drinks and, and play cards? But I mean, he was right. I mean, here I was, I was not in a good spot. I really needed that trip, not just to have a distraction from what was going on in my life, but I needed to connect with some friends that have has known me for, for years, right? Have known me for 20 years and I needed to share with them. And in the moment, I mean, it, it really stung and I, and I really, really kind of felt hurt. But the more I listened to him, I'm, the more I realized he was absolutely right. And what he was doing was he wasn't trying to be mean. He wasn't trying to be offensive. What he was doing is he was inviting us to authenticity. And sometimes when you're feeling insecure or you're feeling wounded, like I was at that time, I was feeling both wounded and insecure, that invitation felt very threatening. And instead... I thought, well, what would happen if we leaned in and we tried to we tried to answer that invitation? And so we 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 just stopped playing cards then. And and I said, you know what? You're right. Here's what's going on. And I just kind of shared what was going on. And then that led uh, the other guys to start share what's going on. And the beautiful part of this, Joshua, the, the the part that's I think is so cool is last weekend I just saw those guys again, and it is literally be- because I put that in the book. And when they were reading through it, they, they sent me a text and they said, hey, we need to get together again. We need to make sure this is a tradition where we can get together and we can actually just have 24 or 48 hours, right? It wasn't long. It was just a quick trip. I was out visiting some family and I wanted to make sure I saw them. And we connected and we did play cards. But this time, before we even played any cards, we made sure that we connected and were authentic with each other. Oh, I love that. And I guess the timing was kind of serendipitous here because that was, you said that was like a weekend that, ago. <laughs> that was, I literally got back uh, late Sunday night. Yeah. And it was beautiful. And it, again, it, you know, but also hard, but, but good. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. So just a, a couple more pieces here. One thing that comes to mind is, as we talk about this kind of closing down and this you know, you talked about the sting and it kind of hurt in the moment. I think to this topic that psychologists call or this capacity psychologists call distress tolerance, like our ability to be with things that are uncomfortable, that can be distressing, et cetera. And this has been a big thread on the show as well, is there's kind of a courage here to yeah. be in discomfort, whether it's uncertainty, whether it's difficult feedback, to stay open to that, to learn from that. And one of the ways in which, uh, if we look at like the psychology of courage, that we can kind of tap in or cultivate courage is to come back to what we care about most, like what really matters to us, whether it's the cultivation of humility, whether it's the relationship with a really good friend, and I want to keep that, or that's the thing that matters here, or it's one of my personal values, right? So really coming back to that core value can be a way in those moments to deal with some of the distress. And there's many, many different strategies and tools out there. So offer this very humbly, I guess, as one possibility, right? I'm curious if there's anything else from your end. If First of all, if this resonates with you, this idea of like distress tolerance of kind of dealing with that and building up that capacity to kind of support cultivating humility. But if there's anything else besides coming back to what we really care about in the moment that can help to deal with the particular discomfort that can arise when we get feedback or, or something else. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, that absolutely resonates. And I love that. I love living according to values. And I, and I think you're absolutely right. When we can align with our values, we're willing to do a lot of really difficult things. It's why people uh, train for things or they attain educational degrees. It's very difficult, but it aligns with their values. It's the same reason why the best relationships are long lasting, but they're also hard, right? Because you're committed to knowing that your values are respecting and loving and being an equal partner with the other member of uh, of your relationship. And that's going to help you in those tough times. So I love the idea of aligning with the values. I think one other thing, you know, practically is, and I don't want to 
you know, say this in a way that seems, you know, self-masochistic, but going out and, and just expanding our ability to do distressing or challenging things. So for me, and I know this is, this might seem very trite or very simplistic, but for me, it was running. I never considered myself to be a runner. I never considered myself to be particularly athletic, but I started running and then started running marathons and, and, trying to push myself to places where I previously thought was off limits or I, I couldn't do helped because not only do you get practice in sitting in the discomfort, but then when you're in a situation and you feel uncomfortable, you remember, I know how to handle this, right? Like I've been here before. And so I, I certainly wouldn't want to tell people to go intentionally, you know, do something that would be unsafe <laughs> or unwise, sure, sure. but we tend to drift more towards comfort, especially in, in American culture. Comfort's just quite easy. And so just asking ourselves, you know, is comfort getting in the way, like you said, is comfort getting in the way of my values? And so building a bit of a distress tolerance, becoming more comfortable with discomfort, I think can be can be helpful. And 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 then that just takes practice. Time and time again, it takes a consistent kind of habitual practice to make that an embodied reality. Beautiful. As we sort of come to a close here, I'm curious about one of the things you do in the book really well is you talk about, and through storytelling, but also sharing of some practical evidence, you share some of the science behind humility. And I found some of the, the findings and the studies fascinating and, um, and just I was fully engaged there. And so I'm, is there anything you'd like to share to dispel perhaps some of the, and we did this a little bit at the beginning, but some of the kind of misconceptions about humility. Oh, it's a weakness, right? Yeah. Or whatever yeah. it might be. And what is it that you and other researchers in the in the field have really found that give you kind of the confidence or sense to say, it's actually not a weakness, it's actually a strength. Is there anything you could point to there? Yeah, absolutely. There, there's a couple. So the, the first and maybe the clearest finding in all of the, the research, and this is extremely robust, is that humility is extremely good for our relationships. People want to be friends with people who are humble. They are more likely to want to date and enter into a romantic relationship with humble relative to arrogant partners. Humility is good for uh, maintaining relationships, for repairing relationships when things go sour, and for people being more satisfied in relationships. One myth is, well, I need to be that confident, narcissistic person who walks in the room and it's all about me. I'm the life of the party. Research suggests, you know, that's so short-lived. You know, that, that kind of flash of attraction is not really what people are looking looking for in long-term partners. And in fact, it's it's going to work against you in the long term because that life of the party that dumped the punch bowl on someone else's head, well, when you're in a relationship with them, eventually they're going to turn against you to, in order to feed their own ego. So the first thing I would say is humility is a boon for relationships. Our relationships are better off with them. The second is a lot of people think, well, humility is well and good at home or with my friends, but at work, I've got to be cutthroat. And this is another area where the research is clear leaders who are humble have far better outcomes than leaders who are arrogant. So we see humility at work and particularly in leadership resulting in more creativity, better performance, better job satisfaction, more cohesive groups relative to, to leaders who are arrogant or even worse, falsely humble. Your workers, your followers will know if you are falsely humble. They can, they can kind of ferret that out. And so really humility is a counterbalance to being hard driving. If you are a hard driving leader, you need a bit of that humility to help counterbalance and counterweight that to kind of maximize your outcomes. And then I'd say the last is that, and, and this is where research is still very, very new. So I'll say this one tentatively. It seems like humility also improves our well-being. So it, it's good for our mental health, but there's also some research that suggests it's good for our physical health, particularly when we're partnered with someone else who's equally humble. So my colleagues and I did a study where we looked at first-time parents transitioning to parenthood. And when both partners were humble, we had much better results, much better experiences. Similarly, partners who were both humble, who came into the lab to discuss a persistent area of conflict or disagreement had better physiological responses in terms of their blood pressure when both were humble relative to just one. So I'd say the research is clear that humility is great for relationships. It helps leaders at work, and it's beginning to suggest that it's good for our well-being. Fantastic summary. And as we close, as we kind of put a little bit of a cap on the conversation, perhaps, we've talked a lot about cultivating humility throughout at various points. One of the things that stood out to me as a takeaway from the book is this isn't easy. 
Right. Maybe it's not for right. the faint of heart. Right. It's definitely, it's definitely takes practice and work, and and everything that you've described and shared has been, I think, incredibly supportive of that, and given maybe some practical takeaways about how to do that, and then much more in the book for people to go out and and pick it up and learn more about that. I guess as we close, though, on top of that, I'm really curious if there's anything that we haven't covered. If you think about a question of how do I live a more authentic or a more humble life themes we've been exploring today? Um, is there anything we haven't touched on that you would really want to leave people with if this is something they want to work toward? Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. You know, one of the things that I, at least I found that was helpful for me is sometimes experiences that remind us of our smallness, at least for me, are particularly helpful in rooting me and grounding me and reminding me that it's not all about me. So in, in the book, kind of in the epilogue, I mentioned an experience where my wife and I were in Iceland and we were able to see the Northern Lights. And I had never felt so small and insignificant. And to be honest, it felt fantastic. Usually when you think of feeling small and insignificant, you think you're going to feel terrible. No, it felt freeing. It felt so nice to realize that my place in the universe was extremely small. For me, nature is a grounding place that also humbles me because I look around and I see trees that have been here long before I got here and that will be here long after I'm gone. And to me, there's something so reassuring about knowing that although the world will go on just fine without me, that, that kind of takes the pressure off, I still have something to contribute to this world. So it's this nice balance of the world won't fall apart if I make a mistake and, and it kind of relievi it alleviates that pressure. But I also... And just overwhelmed with gratitude for being able to be alive and contribute and fully live. And, and you see this cycle between gratitude and, and humility. And so sometimes realizing our smallness and, and appreciating the world around us and being grateful can be one of the things that can help jumpstart our quest toward humility. Daryl, what a pleasure. It's been fun. Um, I've learned a lot. I really appreciate your humility in this conversation <laughs> as well. And it's a privilege to sit with you. So thank you for, for making the time. I want to give you the opportunity to share if there's places where people want to find out more about you, your work, where they can pick up the book, anywhere and everywhere, feel free to, to share what those are. Well, thanks. Uh, yeah. So people can pick up the book at local bookstores or at Amazon, really wherever books are sold. Uh, it's called Humble. Uh, you can find out more about my work on my website, darylvantongren.com or uh, on Twitter at Dr. Van Tongren or on Instagram at Daryl Van Tongren. And uh, thank you so much for having me. This has really been a treat for me. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Courageous Life. I'd like to extend special thanks as always to my executive producer, Matt Donner, for all of the incredible behind the scenes work he does to make this show sound great. He's also responsible for composing the original music that you hear at the beginning and the end of every episode. Also, if you're enjoying the show and the conversation, please do share with friends because I believe that courage is contagious. And while you're at it, if you happen to be on iTunes, make sure you click the subscribe button or if you feel so compelled, leave a positive review. It encourages me to keep going and also helps others to find a valuable show amidst the many podcasts that are out there. Until next time, this is Joshua Steinfeld with The Courageous Life.